Hello everyone, and welcome to Your Christadelphian Library, where we discuss Christadelphian books with the goal of expanding biblical knowledge and stimulating spiritual thought. This is Brother Caleb Osborne, bringing you episode number one, and the book we're going to talk about today is A Life of Jesus by Brother Melva Perkis. My copy of A Life of Jesus was given to me by a friend when we were teenagers. It's one of the first books that I read, and it's one of the books that I most frequently take off the shelf to aid in my studies or just to find encouragement or insight. Uh, We'll start by just giving a bit of an overview of the book. Uh, It was first published by uh, the Christadelphian in 1953. Since then, it's gone through several editions and several reprintings. And it's set up uh, like a biography. It takes the reader on a journey through the life of Christ from just before his birth, uh, through his ministry, death and resurrection, uh, through all the way to his ascension. And it covers just about every event that is recorded of his life. Not necessarily in great detail, but it's all sort of there in one uh, one story, in one flowing story. Uh, Brother Melva's uh, forward to his book explains that his goal in writing this book was to provide a simple picture of Jesus that will encourage the reader to look more reverently at him and meditate more frequently on his words. So this book was intended more as a devotional book than for the purpose of exposition. Uh, It focuses on telling the story of Jesus' life, although it does pause occasionally to reflect on some encouraging or convicting insight or to to give some uh, expositional comment. And Brother Melva says that his prayer for this work was that it might warm the heart of its readers. I think if you read it, you'll agree with me that it succeeds very well in that endeavor. Uh, For me, the greatest value of reading A Life of Jesus has been that it has helped me to really get to know Jesus better. It's helped me to understand who Jesus was, what his life was like, what his character was like, what it was like for for his disciples and for those who listened to him uh, uh, to see him in the flesh, and most importantly, what he wants in a relationship with his disciples or in his relationship with me. And we know from uh, places like Philippians 3 that the most important thing we can strive for is to be able to know Jesus. Um, And because as John 17 says, to know Jesus and to know God is life eternal. And so if we're trying to accomplish that goal, I highly recommend uh, this book, A Life of Jesus, uh, to help us work towards that goal. Now, as far as structure goes, the book is divided into eight sections. The first section uh, covers his birth and childhood. The second section considers the background of his ministry and John the Baptist. The third, uh, his manifestation to Israel. The fourth, uh, the Galilean ministry. The fifth, sort of the middle years of his ministry. Uh, The sixth, the the twilight of his ministry. And the seventh uh, book discusses the last week of Christ's life culminating in his death. And the eighth uh, book fittingly covers his resurrection and ascension. So all in all, there are a total of 70 chapters, each one coming out on average to about five pages. And the way it's written, each chapter is about a specific event or story, which makes A Life of Jesus an excellent book from which to read just a chapter or two per day. If you were able to take up reading this book, uh, you would, all you would need is just uh, time for five pages a day. You'd be able to complete the book in just over two months. And I can guarantee you that every day you'd have something interesting, convicting, or thought-provoking to either reflect on throughout the day or to think about as you're going to sleep, depending on when you choose to read it. 
As I was flipping back through the book to look for quotes to share with you, I found something interesting in pretty much every chapter. So to narrow it down, I decided to choose a few selections that illustrate some of the different types of writing that is typical of how Brother Melville writes in this book um, to, to give you a taste for what you'll find in, in most chapters of the book. One of the things that Brother Melva uh, does really well in his book is describe this story or, or paint a picture in your mind of, of these events that we read about in a, just a few verses in the Bible. And for an example of that, I've chosen a, a section from his chapter um, called The First Leper, uh, which talks about one of the lepers who Jesus healed, the first one, in fact, that he healed. I'm going to read to you a paragraph which talks about how this leper meets Jesus. It seems very probable from the confidence of this leper's approach that he had been watching Jesus for some time. Lingering far back behind the multitude, the stricken man had been unable to hear the words of Jesus, but he was able to catch the importance of them by the rapt attention with which the people listened. He had seen the sick being carried and led towards the center of the crowd, but no sick returned, only empty couches and rejoicing people. Slowly, a great hope was born in the wretched man's heart. Was it possible that he could approach this great healer? If only he could get through this endless surging crowd, he knew he would be cured. This man who gave the, the blind their sight, cured the maniacs, lifted the paralyzed from their beds and sent them walking away with praise on their lips, this man could restore his rotting flesh and deliver him from his living death. As the hours passed, his faith strengthened into action. The people nearest to him were horrified to hear his dreaded cry, Unclean! Unclean! No longer the monotonous cry of despair, but an urgent, triumphant shout. The people shrank away quickly, widening an avenue that led towards Jesus. At last he stood before him, startled at his own temerity, the ravages of his affliction horribly evident. They were almost alone. The crowds had backed away. Looking into the eyes of Jesus, he found his confidence once more. He fell forward on his face. His cry of faith rang out, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. He waited a breathless eternity. Suddenly, he felt firm, gentle hands close on his scaly flesh, the first human touch he had known for years. And then he heard the voice of Jesus. The leper's if had moved the Lord. His response was, I will. And then, with a word of authority, the evil flesh melted under his touch. The scarred and wasted body glowed with health. The next quote I'm going to read to you um, is an example of another hallmark of the way Brother Melva writes this book, and that is that at the end of most of his sections where he tells the story of an event, he'll he'll write a paragraph or two just touching on some lessons we can learn, and he always does it in, in a brief and concise and yet very effective way. So here's a quote um, from his chapter where he talks about the storm on Galilee uh, after the feeding of the 5,000. Many lessons emerge from this night on the sea, nor are they all for the benefit of the immediate disciples alone. Life can present a picture of a dark and turbulent sea with Jesus afar off. It is the slow triumph of faith to see him on the heights above in communion and intercession with his Father. Sometimes he comes to us in the midst of the storm and darkness, in unfamiliar form which we must learn to recognize. We are quick to appreciate, if we are slow to learn, that when we walk over the waters to meet him, we must not be dismayed by the darkness, the winds, or the waves. 
we must believe that his power is greater far, that he can save even unto the uttermost, that faith can only be sustained by keeping our eyes fixed lovingly and obediently upon him. Finally, few will miss the significance of this miracle for these final troubled years. The sea and the waves are roaring, men's hearts failing, their resources almost spent. But in the last watch of the night, the son will leave his father's presence and come with his word of peace to those who yearn for him. And with him will come the dawn and the desired haven. But this book does not confine itself to telling the story and drawing out practical lessons. It also takes many opportunities to step back and teach about the importance and effect of some aspect of the work of Christ. I'm going to read to you a quote where Brother Melva is discussing the ministry of Jesus and specifically comments on how the mission of his first advent relates to the mission of his second. I don't know about you, but I've often wondered why both John the Baptist and Jesus spend so much time teaching about the kingdom of God and telling them people to prepare for the kingdom at a time when the kingdom still wasn't going to come for several thousand years. And the quote I'm about to read does a great job of explaining how Jesus' miracles and teachings became both the first fruits and the foundation of the kingdom of God. It helped my thinking on the matter, and hopefully you'll find it interesting and perhaps helpful as well. So here it goes. Throughout the, his gracious ministry, Jesus preached the things of the kingdom. The miracles he wrought had a direct bearing on his teaching. He had come to proclaim salvation, to invite men to turn to God and receive the adoption of sons. He prepared men's minds for the time when, under his hand, the whole earth would be filled with the glory of his Father. In a very real sense, the kingdom of God was at hand. He was the king. His obedience unto death was to set the seal to God's purpose. The precepts which he taught were the principles upon which the kingdom would be governed. Each miracle he wrought over disease and death was a symbol of the final abolition of sin and the final victory over death. Each mastery over the powers of nature was an earnest of the day when all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and he shall be governor among the nations. This thought is wonderfully expressed in the 103rd Psalm, where the words of the psalmist can apply equally to the coming of the man of sorrows and the coming of the lion of the tribe of Judah as king of the whole earth. The psalmist says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And forget not all his benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. Those who respond to the teaching of Jesus become children of the kingdom. In obeying his commandments, they practice the principles of his kingdom. They can only look for persecution and sacrifice in their mortal life, because like their Lord, their kingdom is not of this age. They live and die in the confidence that the day of the Lord is coming and with it the full realization of all their hopes. The final quote I'd like to share with you is actually the first quote that I ever heard uh, from this book. And I heard it in a few uh, talks before I ever read the book. And it comes from chapter 14 of the seventh uh, section, uh, which is called The Place of a Skull. It's the chapter that deals with the actual crucifixion of Jesus. And the chapter starts like this. Early Christians refused to look at representations of Christ on the cross because they had seen men crucified. Our heart fails and our pen falters as we force ourselves to look at the events of the next six hours. It is a sight too terrible to gaze upon for long, yet to refuse to look at him steadily for a few moments before we wait for the first day of the week is to deny ourselves the consolation of his love. We cannot linger in the shadow of the cross. 
but we must approach, lift our reluctant eyes steadfastly to his, and pass on our way with bleeding but strengthened hearts determined that for us that sacrifice shall not be in vain. This quote is a gripping example of how Brother Melva's writing can inspire and demand action. And I think that's because it really highlights the moral power of the atonement. It shows the effect that an an encounter with Jesus on the cross must have in our lives, which is that we actually change as a result of seeing Jesus. Now, if you do pick up this book and read it, or indeed if you uh, read the Gospels, or if you listen to any class or, or read any material about Jesus, the goal should be, as we said at the beginning of this episode, the goal should be to be able to get to know Jesus better. And as you get to know Jesus better, there then comes a responsibility in your part to change your life as a result. And that's what Jesus wanted when he died for us on the cross. He wanted us to come to look at him and to be affected by that, to have our hearts bleed, as Brother Melva says, but also to be strengthened and be determined that we make sure that, at least for us in our life, Jesus' sacrifice will not be in vain. So that's all I have to say about a life of Jesus. Um, I hope that you do read it, and if you do, you find it helpful. I encourage you to subscribe or follow, uh, or at least listen in on next week's episode of your Christadelphian Library, when Brother Ethan Jones will be discussing the book that he's been reading for the past month or so, which is a collection of Brother Robert Roberts' writing called The Hope of Israel.